Welcome to the Access Hour with me, Ruth Newman, this week's host. The midterm election is coming right up, and thanks to the Louisville League of Women Voters, you are about to hear from three candidates for public office. The next voice you hear is that of Christina Peace introducing Tina Ward-Pugh, Democrat candidate for Jefferson County Clerk, the current county clerk, Republican Bobby Hulk's law was invited but declined to participate. Give us an overview of who you are and your race and why um, you are running for Jefferson County So many of you may not know, but uh, I'm, I'm from Mississippi. Uh, I moved here in 1987 to attend Southern Seminary, where I graduated in 1991 with my master's in social work. And as a young social worker and budding feminist, I quickly realized uh, that marching, uh, advocating, and just generally getting into good trouble was the way to get things done. And so uh, whether I was marching for abortion rights or for LGBTQ rights uh, in the 80s and 90s or for fair housing, it was very clear that elected leaders are the people who are making decisions about our lives. And so, though I was helping elect a lot of women judges, I decided to run myself uh, in 1998, and I won. I was honored to be the first ward alderwoman for four years, the ninth district councilwoman for 12 years, and then most recently, the director of the Metro Government's Office for Women where I resigned last August in order to run for this job. I have been a progressive voice for a long time and for human rights. Uh, that includes leading the passage of fairness twice, leading the smoking ban public health initiative, and helping create and fund the Louisville Affordable Housing Trust Fund. And whether fighting for women's rights or LGBTQ rights or housing rights, I have always been a champion for those people who have the same rights as everyone, but who don't have the same access to exercise those rights as most, if not all of us, in this room tonight. And so one of the things that I, of course, have been learning uh, over the last two and a half, three years is our democracy at the ballot box is under attack. So I asked people, did you know that the Board of Elections is under the county clerk's office? And 80% of them, whether they are from the east, west, or south, have no idea that the clerk's office is over the Board of Elections. And so I'm running primarily for that reason, because I think that we need to be focused on the Board of Elections. The county clerk, of course, uh, after 24 years, has done some really good things. But it feels to me like She's focused more on vehicles, and she's valued vehicles more than she values voting. And I think that needs to change, especially at this time in the life of our country and in our democracy. So uh, I'm also running uh, because people think about access primarily as about uh, accessibility, like uh, wheelchair ramps, automatic doors, curb cuts. Uh, all those kinds of things, uh, parking close to uh, entrances, and they're crucial, 
But I want to, I, I'm running because I want people to have more access to voter information so that they can make informed decisions about voting, so they know where they're going to vote. Every day I knock, somebody says, well now, do I still vote over here? And I just say to them, now I can tell you where you vote right here, but I'm knocking on your door asking for your vote and you don't know where you're going to vote. You're asking me to tell you where to vote. Something's wrong with that. The clerk needs to be in better communication with the citizens of this community. You know, I decided to run because we need an advocate. We need a fighter. We need a problem solver. We need somebody who's going to listen to the public and who's going to take that into account. Uh, and someone who uh, is thinking about other ways to expand voting access and the other services in the office. And so I'm, I'm familiar with and uh, have some ideas about how to improve all of the other services that are in that office, but primarily I'm focused on the Board of Elections and ensuring, unlike the previous people, we, we do have, this is about the integrity of the elections. This is about the vision and the future and advocating for everyone to have access to those elections, because right now they don't, and they should. What can the county clerk do to make voting more accessible, increase the number of voters, and increase voter turnout? Well, the thing that I think about a lot is about improving communication. I don't know about you all. We moved this last year um, because we sold our house. It's the only equity we had um, so that we could run for this office. And, you know, we got a card, postcard in the mail that said May the 17th where you vote. It didn't even have the early voting dates on it. It just had where to vote and the actual day of what we, what we know as election day. Uh, I have some friends who were away for the month of January. They came home and found out there was going to be a special election, and a, and a wonderful special election uh, for now Representative Couture Aaron for a special district because um, Representative uh, Meeks had resigned. So she calls the Board of Elections and a staff members, you know, to say, where, where do we vote? When do we vote? What's the day? Where, you know, those kinds of things. It's a special election. And she told them, she told her the information, and then she said, well, why didn't we know about this? And the staff member said, well, we did what was required, and that was take out an ad in the Courier Journal. And so part of my emphasis is about communicating better so that you're going to get a text message about that there's a vote coming up. You're going to get an email because I'm going to find your email. <laughs> because if you want to vote and you want to be notified when things are happening in your neighborhood, whether it's a center that's open to get your tags, your vehicle tags, I'm going to be able to find you and give you every opportunity to vote. Now you can choose to not vote, you can choose to not participate in other things, but it won't be because we haven't done our best to get you the chance to vote. Because voting is the bedrock of democracy, and it's how we choose our leaders and the people who are making decisions every day that affect our daily lives. And so I'm going to communicate better through those means. I'm gonna, I'm gonna work with all 26 special council members to get news articles or reminders in their electronic e-newsletters, their electronic newsletters that go out weekly. Um, I have a good rapport with all Republicans and the Democrats to do that. I'm going to do that if there are the Jefferson County delegation members have uh, e-newsletters or regular printed newsletters. I'm going to make sure 
we had up-to-date information when those go out. I also am going to focus on uh, a couple of things. One, I'm going to work with the League of Women Voters uh, on how we can expand access to registering voters. I'm going to follow the lead of Councilman Ja'Cory Arthur and Shamika Parrish-Wright in their work to get people in jail registered to vote and allow them to vote. As a matter of fact, one of the things I'd like to do in conjunction with them, and we are all talking about this, is actually making a polling location at the jail. We have a captured audience, 1,300 to maybe 15 or 1,800 a day are in the jail. Most of them who are in pretrial. Some of them who, who are even caught between those 12 sacred 12 hours we get on election day, and even in those three early days we get, they're just caught being processed and can't get out to go vote. And so we're all trying to work on how to get them registered to vote, how to get them request absentee ballots, and for the folks who are going to fall between the cracks there, we're just going to make it a, a polling location. And it won't just be for those folks, it'll be for the workers. By the way, every day, second and third shift workers, right, who when they get off work at 3 and 4 in the morning, I'm sure, don't go home and wait till 6 a.m. to go vote, right? They go home, they either get their kids to go to school and then they crash because it's, it's sleep time for them, or they do it as soon as they get home. And so what I want to do is I want to think about maybe having one of those early three-day uh, early voting sites to be a 24-hour voting site so that, uh, you know, if you're out at the Ford plant or the GE plant or if you're working a third shift at a restaurant um, and you get off, you know, whether it's one in the south and east and west or just one that's central, I'd like for you to have at least four 24-hour days to be able to go and catch your vote. And some of these things, granted, are going to take legislative change, but I'm going to lobby for those changes. I'm going to work with Republicans and Democrats to bring about those changes. So I think all of those things get us to a place where we're going to have more voters voting because they have better access to voting and they know where to vote and when to vote. In your opinion, what's the most important qualification for a counselor? Well, so my initial reaction is is probably more a generic, what is the most important qualification of any public servant, and I think that's to have a servant's heart. I think it's to come from a place where you want to serve your community. It doesn't mean that you are in any way or different form elevated in any way above anyone, but I do believe that when you work with the public, and I have done that for uh, 16 years in office. You know, you, you have to be a good listener. You have to be a problem solver. You have to be able to say, you know, I think primarily it's everything you do comes from the place of you want to serve the public better. How would you attract and effectively train co-workers? So that's a great question. One of the things that I talk about also is um, uh, creating a robust poll worker service core. And what I mean by that is, you know, we think of poll workers only as what's minimally required. And that is all of the, you know, rules and regulations for being inside the poll, being over the rolls, 
um, standing by the machine, all, all the things that are required and, and important to, to safeguard the integrity of the election. But I don't know about you, but there are plenty of times, especially now that we have super sites to vote at, because I, I, I've visited a couple of them. I vote, I vote in my own neighborhood. I'm fortunate enough to be able to, to walk to our polling location. But you know, I was at the fairgrounds, you know, at the height of midday when people were scrambling to go vote because it was noontime, which happens a lot at a lot of different polling locations. I mean, if there was one of those small little orange cones, I didn't see it. There were no signs when, when it, there was a lot of construction going on. And at the split, you didn't know which way to go. And so, there were no designated handicapped parking spaces up close for folks who were driving there who needed to be close to the, to the doors. I want uh, poll workers to be outside too. Uh, you know, and you, you can, whatever training you have to go through, whatever uh, swearing process that you are going to treat everyone equally and fairly that you have to go through, you know, I think that that there ought to be people, and there's some people here in this audience actually, who voluntarily, two years ago, rounded up a number of wheelchairs just as good people and went there and followed seniors because people were leaving because there were no parking spaces. You know, if somebody can follow you in a wheelchair and get you there, or, you know, if someone wants to valet park your car while you go inside. We just got to be thinking about people having access to vote. I know there's a, a DOJ settlement with the clerk, clerk's office right now for violations in the 2020 election against lack of mobility. And, you know, I just think that that's unthinkable that that happens and it's happening here. And we got to work hard to change that. Reference election integrity. What is the county clerk's role and responsibility in protecting that integrity of the election? Well, there are um, specific rules that are laid out in Chapter 117, and then uh, which dictate how you secure machines, uh, the oversight of the machines, the transporting of the machines. That there have to be video cameras. There, there, there is enough guidance out there. And, and as they said earlier, Republican Secretary of State Michael Adams has done a great job uh, ensuring and advocating for us to have these extra three days, by the way. Um, it wasn't our clerk that lobbied for that. It was the Republican Secretary of State who got that done for us. Uh, and I told him I appreciated that and look forward to working with him because that's the kind of attitude that you got to have when you're in these positions. And so the clerk oversees all of that. Uh, the clerk is a, is a member of the Board of Elections uh, that gets together uh, at a place. Uh, and if you have questions about your ballot or your name's not on it, uh, on the ballot where you are, makes decisions about whether or not you can go ahead and vote. As I said earlier, I don't have a problem with, with what's happening around elections and the integrity of them. My problem is, is that not enough is being done to bring people access to vote in those elections. So it's a critical job. The clerk does it. She counts our votes. Her people count our votes. But our elections are safe. We just need to care about everybody having a chance to vote. You talked about recently uh, imprisoned voters. What should the county clerk's responsibility be to reaching out to former felons? I'm glad you brought that up because I have a, a list somewhere here um, of some of the things that I'm interested in doing. 
one of the things on that list is, I don't know how often the Secretary of State purges roles. I have no idea, but I will find out. And however often that is, whether I have to ask every week or every month, uh, I'm going to ask that question and I'm going to request those uh, purged voters from the roles in our office. Uh, is going to expand clerk alert uh, to something beyond your, your deed, someone's filing a deed. And I want to do the same thing with uh, felons, you know. I, I want a list. I want the clerk's office to have a list. Uh, there are people who are working every day in our community to try and help uh, felons go through the process to restore their rights. And by the way, thank you Governor Bashir for making that possible. And if he isn't re-elected, that will go away. It's just an executive order. But the clerk's office, uh, again, they are a, a block, a group of voters or potential voters. Many of them have no idea there's a process to go through. They show up and say, I'm ready to vote or I'm trying to vote, and they say, well, you can't because you've got to go through this process. I think that there are enough people uh, in this community who care about felons getting the right to vote, that we, we will put together a coalition of folks who will plan and plot out how to get that done, how to locate and ask, you know, we, and we're gonna, you know, we're not about making people do this. This isn't about, you know, making people vote. First of all, it's about engaging them in, in talking more and educating the public about the importance of voting, but also understanding why folks aren't voting, and then recognize that we have a responsibility to do all we can to get them the access to vote. Uh, and I think that we can get that done, and it will be part of a program that we create. It's, it's will be defined and to register if they want to, or help them go through that process in order to be able to register vote. What are your priorities for modernizing the county clerk's office? I see signs of no waiting you know, to get your tags, and I appreciate that. And there's still um, a little bit more that can be done there. Um, uh, I know that the technology is antiquated. I know that the deed room uh, only has records digitized back to 1982. And I'm not sure why, because the capability is there with the software to continue to digitize them at a, at a much higher uh, rate. You know, if you think about it, I know folks in the real estate business, uh, in, in property ownership, in deeds, um, you know, their historic preservation, their documents back to the 1700s. And if there's a flood and if there's a fire, and it has happened before, by the way, these documents are gone. And so it seems to me that, that doing some of that, uh, incorporating the technology and actually focusing on some of that would, would be very helpful. I also know that we're one of two counties that don't have a direct access to the Secretary of State's office to be able to align, to be able to download election results as they happen. Matter of fact, the Secretary of State says, oh yeah, y'all are one of the only two that don't have that because you know, there's a resistance to updating technology. So th those would be a couple of things that, that I would do. And, and as I said, you know, our communications and social media, I mean, 
there's finally a social media this year in the clerk's office for the first time and you know we, we need to improve the website the website is not user friendly we need to be a part of uh, a Facebook and digital media presence and we only barely are you know there just are so many things that ha have happened that should already have happened that need to happen that we will make happen around modernizing the clerk's office Thank you. Now it's time for audience participation. The first question I have is, what are you going to do to do better for elections that hasn't already been done? Well, I've, I've named off a, a number of those, I think, um, and I'll just re repeat them. Uh, the first one is, um, we're going to focus on having better access to be able to vote. You're not going to be hunting for where's that little orange cone, it's behind that car, can you see it, is this really the right driveway? You know, I, I, I don't want you to be guessing where to go, because there are people who pass by that and then decide I'm just going to go on to work. I'm not going to turn around, it's raining, uh, it's busy, whatever it is. I want you to have every chance to do that. So we're going to do a lot more visibility, we're going to be focusing on partnering with the League of Women Voters, being more intentional about uh, partnering with JCPS and the parochial schools to do more voter education, you know, maybe even a speaker's bureau, the, the felons, restoring felons, a process to locate felons and help restore their voting ability. Um, working by making the jail a polling location, um, having people working outside, especially the super center. There's really no excuse. I want to take away every excuse that you're going to make up or that you really have for not voting. You know, I, I'm, for, I'm for the three weeks of early voting, just like we had with COVID. I mean, it worked. Why, why don't we do that again? I, I think the Secretary of State wanted to. He lost that one. I'm for the early voting. Um, I'm for 24-hour voting. All of these things are things that aren't happening now. And our current clerk isn't talking about them now, and she certainly isn't advocating for them now. And I'm not saying they're going to be easy. I'm saying we need someone who really wants to know and is driven by what more can we do, not what is minimally required that we do. That's the difference in, I think, a word P clerk would bring administration would look like. What is your opinion of universal mail-in voting, which is in effect in Oregon and Washington? Everyone can vote from home. I don't know enough about it to understand the integrity of it, uh, but I am generally for more ways to vote. I know there are many states, who, including Colorado, who just you automatically get mailed your, your ballot. You don't request it, nothing. It just gets sent to you. And for that, as long as, you know, if there's a mechanism to mail it back or to drop it off, vote from home somehow, or that there's a, a paper record somewhere, if it is electronic, I'm for it. So I'll give you an opportunity to make some closing statements. So I want to be clear. I don't have a problem with the clerk's employees. They do a good job. I have a problem with their leader and her lack of vision and tenacity for our future. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to stop doing what is minimally required and be guided by the pursuit of what more can we do to serve the public. 
I'm going to do an analysis of employees so that, that I can do all that I can to retain the current employees and not have to recruit and train new ones. And the way I'm going to retain them is by making sure their wages are competitive with other, other government agencies. I want them to make a living wage. I even want them to consider unionizing. And the reason why I want them to do that, and I'm going to encourage them to do it, and I'm going to help them if they want to do it, is because no matter who their boss is or who the elected official is, they will always have bargaining power. It won't matter if it's a Democrat or Republican if they as a group have a bargaining power. And so I, I want to help make that happen for them. You know, I'm going to review the map that the bipartisan group, uh, Metro Council and state legislators, especially uh, two Republican state legislators, they drew two years ago and asked for 23 super sites, and the county clerk only gave them four. Her own party asked for 23, and she gave them four. And on election day, she acquiesced and gave us, gave us eight. Why don't we have 23? I'm also going to expand Clerk Alert, which is a nice program that notifies citizens when uh, someone comes into the deed room or um, offers a, a document uh, referred to someone uh, that has a record in the clerk's office. They get an alert that someone has come in and requested a document or is looking at a document uh, or trying to do something of consequence with the document. I, I'd like to expand that to, to voters. If I get the, the purged rolls, you know, I'd like to send those folks a clerk alert. You've been purged. You could do something about this or not, but I just want you to know that. And I'm gonna do all of this with the money that the clerk turns in every year. <laughs> At the end of each of her terms, on average, Bobby Holscall gives back around $2 million, that's about $500,000, $500,000, a year, that is allocated for her office that she doesn't use for her office. And I think that there are plenty of ways to use that money, and I've just been talking for 30 minutes or an hour about all the ways that we could be using those, those dollars. And by law, of course, you have to turn back in, state law, the money you don't spend. So there's always going to be some money to get back because you're not going to overspend. But $2.2 million every four years or 600000 a year, I'm not going to turn all that money back in. I'm going to focus on the very things I've been talking about. The employees, additional voting locations, additional ways to communicate with the public and focus on the things that need to be done in this office uh, that aren't being done. And so I guess the last thing that I want to say is, is I want you to know this, again, that the citizens who utilize our services, whether getting a title to a vehicle, tags for that vehicle, a marriage license, finding a deed, getting a handicapped parking sticker, or trying to vote, I will be your tireless fighter for you and especially for you who have the same rights as everyone but who don't have the same access to exercise those rights because you deserve nothing less than my best and our best. Thank you very much. That was Tina Ward-Pugh, Democratic candidate for Jefferson County Clerk. And this is the Access Hour on WFMP 106.5 FM with me, your host, Ruth Newman. Next up 
our Democratic incumbent, Dr. Karen Berg, and her Republican challenger, James Peden, running for state senator from the 26th Senatorial District. Good evening, guys. My name is Karen Berg, Dr. State Senator Karen Berg. I am a, a doctor. I practice uh, emergency diagnostic radiology at University of Louisville Hospital. I am the mother of two beautiful children. I want to make us proud of who we are, what we stand for, and, and how we treat our citizens. I promise I will do my best to speak up and speak out for the issues that affect my constituents. Thank you. Again, my name is James Peden. I've been on the Metro Council now for 20 years. I was the guy out of left field when I ran the first time. When the, when the Metro government was brand, brand new, I did not have any experience with the Board of Aldermen. I didn't have any experience with uh, county commissioners or any of that. A lot of the same reasons got me involved that, that Dr. Berg mentioned. At the time, I had a very young family uh, at the same time, I had been teaching at Iroquois High School, probably going, that was in my sixth of what would it be seven years there before I moved on to Seneca. And even, even my time on the council has been me making phone calls to the Parks Department or to Public Works because as I'm pushing a stroller 20 years ago and I hit a piece of uneven sidewalk, it's like, got to get that fixed, almost tossed my kid out. I bet there's some other people who have that same problem. You know, those kind of things are, are why anyone runs for office. 99% of them are, are in office is because they see issues that need to be fixed or they see problems they want to solve or they just want to be involved and that's their way of giving back. I, I go back again to my Metro Council time. What do I see? I see a disconnect between what goes on in here in Louisville and what goes in Frankfurt. Doesn't matter whether we've had a Republican governor, a Democrat governor, I want to be able to bridge that gap when the time comes. And now we will get started with the first question from Dr. Burke. Kentucky is one of the few states that does not automatically restore felons' voting rights when they have completed their sentence. Have you supported or will you support legislation to automatically restore felons' voting rights? The answer is absolutely yes. I, it's one of the things that I'm extremely proud of our Democratic governor for getting started here in this state. My feeling about felony convictions and restoring felony voting rights goes along honestly with my feeling about how we treat people with criminal histories in this state and in this country. Making a mistake should not impact the rest of your life. It should not keep you from being able to get assistance with housing or assistance with education because we believe in a society where people can be redeemed. And keeping felons from voting, which is one of the most important rights we have as community members in this country, disenfranchises them to the point where there is no reason, no way for them to see a way forward as active participants in our community. If you have done your time, you should be able to vote. Thank you. 
Thank you, Dr. Byrd. Mr. Peters? Uh, the answer is yes, I have supported that. I would continue to support that. Even when it came up locally, we had a ban the box movement, which is on job applications to remove, are you a convicted felon from the initial application, where that can't be even asked until subsequent later on interviews with folks. If you have done your time, if you are finished with our judicial system, you should be allowed to go back to a full voting member of society. Mr. Bean, the second question is for you. As a legislator, how would you propose to curb the causes of climate change in Kentucky? And what priorities, such as infrastructure investment or payments for relocation costs, would you support? That's a gigantic question for 90 seconds, just to say, because for instance, both of those storms, both the floods of eastern Kentucky, the tornadoes of western Kentucky, those storms started elsewhere. Climate change is a global issue that goes far beyond the borders of Kentucky. It's insane what goes on on the rest of the planet. On the other hand, here locally or within our own state, we could, for instance, strengthen laws that don't allow, for instance, building within the floodplain would be a nice start. We don't have that here locally. You're allowed to build in the floodplain as long as you make a receptacle for that water somewhere. Doesn't necessarily mean that that house is gonna be not flooded the next time we have one of those 500 year floods every year. We could minimize the removal of trees. We've actually kind of done that locally within the Metro Council. Obviously a very interesting, very relevant question for Kentucky. We are now being cited as an example of what climate change can do to a state not just throughout the United States, but literally throughout the world. People are looking at Kentucky and looking at the devastation that's been ravaged in our state as a result of climate change. So what do we do? The first thing you do, guys, is you acknowledge that climate change is a problem and you commit the laws that you institute will keep that in the forefront that the climate impact of development in this state has to be a major part of the infrastructure going forward. Kentucky is now poised to be one of the, if not the, leading state in this country on electrical battery manufacturing and clean energy. We in Frankfurt have already discussed and passed legislation that is actually going to be a federal requirement that we will have charging stations every 50 miles on all of our main interstates. This question is from Dr. Bird. What programs and policies do you support to improve Kentuckians' health? The truth is, I wish, I wish I had the answer for that. We have made major strides in this state. The expansion of Medicare and then during the pandemic, the expansion of Medicaid has allowed almost every child in Kentucky to now have full coverage insurance. That is a huge step forward. We have so much further to go, guys. We have children in foster care. We have children who are not getting the medical, emotional, and psychiatric care that they need in this state. And I can promise you, as legislators, we are looking for the data. 
and trying to figure out how we're going to move forward. There is a, a general prevailing sense in Frankfurt that our managed care organizations, our MCOs, which you now have six in this state, should be responsible for the health outcomes of their patients. And I do not think that is reasonable. I think that as a state, we need to put time and energy supporting public health, educating our citizens as to what is good health and what can we do individually and with our physicians to make our state healthier. Mr. Pini? We've been so unhealthy for so long. It's just accepted at this point. And that's speaking from a guy who's 100 pounds heavier than when he took office. And I mean, I fully admit that. Again, much like Dr. Berg, I don't quite know the answers. I know from a payer standpoint, I think we're heading in the right direction. As someone whose father entered what is probably will ultimately become hospice care just last week, where we bounced from TJ Sampson in Barron County to Sky Rehab in Bowling Green to the whatever hospital in Bowling Green he got carried to, and now he's at Vanderbilt, where he's then been sent to the burn unit. There were no questions answered along the way. I think just making people more knowledgeable of their own health care and their own health care system, as opposed to my mom, who's also 80, and just was yes sir, yes ma'am, yes sir, yes ma'am, versus me and my sister and two brothers who were, no, you need to tell us why. I think that would be a good start just to, I don't want to use the word make people more responsible because you have to be fairly educated to do it, but we have to allow people to take some buy-in to that and let them know what's going along the way and make good, sound judgment calls for what they feel is best for them. Kentucky has two constitutional amendments on the ballot. Number one allows for the legislature to call itself into session. Amendment number two takes away the constitutional right to an abortion. What are your positions on these amendments and why? I understand the concept of the first one on being able to call themselves in a session. That stemmed from a lot of the restrictions from the COVID shutdown and their inability to do anything about it. I don't necessarily support being able to call yourself into session at any time for any reason. There needs to be some threshold somewhere. You have to have 75% of the house or each, both chambers or something. Otherwise, people would just be calling themselves in willy-nilly for anything and I don't think they need that kind of latitude. On the abortion amendment two, I haven't even figured out how I'm gonna vote. I do know that the recent overturning of Roe versus Wade has pretty much thrown all abortion questions back into state legislatures, which is why, again, I imagine that'll be a question later on. But even then, I don't know where to go with that. Not guaranteeing a constitutional uh, right to something, does that hamstring the legislature from doing something or not doing something? Or if you do have a constitutional right, does that hamstring the legislature from doing something or not doing something? I need to find that out. I am definitely a no vote on Amendment 1 and definitely a no vote on Amendment 2. To me, Amendment 1 is an expensive overreach, a partisan power grab that is unnecessary and I personally do not under any circumstances trust the leadership of the legislative branch to use it in good faith. It will be used only as a tool to hurt the executive branch and promote whatever extreme Republican agenda there is. Each time, guys, each time they call us into session, 
quarter of a million dollars out of your pocket so that they can usurp the Constitution of the state of Kentucky and do what they want. As far as amendment number two, I mean, it is an extremist ban. No exceptions for rape, no exceptions for incest. The only exceptions for the life of the mother at this point, guys, this is such an extreme overreach. And I can promise you my constituents do not want this. The majority of people in the state are aghast at where we are at this point. Dr. Bird, what do you consider the most serious criminal justice problem in our state and what should the legislature do to solve it? And I came from a background in medicine and I thought that our healthcare delivery system was in trouble. But the truth is our judicial system, particularly during COVID, has not under any circumstances been able to meet the needs of the people of the state of Kentucky. And we are well aware of it, both Republicans and Democrats. We have people waiting in jail for a year to get a hearing. I have Republican colleagues who are saying, we can't keep them in jail this long, we can't keep them in jail this long, we have to let them out because this is extreme. We do not have enough judges, we do not have enough courts, and we are not taking care of the people. And you've got to understand, guys, if you get arrested and incarcerated, and you have even three months, four months of pre-trial incarceration, that can destroy the rest of your life. You lose your job, you can lose your families, because we do not have a system that works this is one of the things that has been a major eye-opener for me. And one of the things that I can tell you, we are working on, it is in desperate need of being fixed. So on the, the topic of not enough judges, I'm not sure there's not enough hours being worked by the judges we have. As debates go around town, maybe that should be a question of how often are you there? As someone who is across the street at City Hall, there's not a whole lot of action going on in the judicial system. Again, I don't know if that's going to require legislative action. On the other hand, I think that's crossing that separation of powers issue when it comes to setting someone's schedule. Number one on my list is judicial housing for teens. We at this moment have no place to keep our youth. I'm not saying having a year's worth of youth detention. I'm saying 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours. We don't have it. So that if you're arrested right now as a teenager for carjacking someone at a gas station, which has been going on, you will be released back to your parents that day. That's just how it rolls right now in Louisville. There are some capacity available in, in like Bully County, Oldham County, et cetera, but local judges do not want to send our teens out of county. I can understand the sympathy, but we have to find something here locally where we can separate them from the crime that they've committed. And if it's something even more violent, even just holding them for a little while will prevent retaliatory action because when you have one killing, you may have another one the next day if you don't do something to intervene. Mr. Pugh, recent redistricting in Kentucky was once again not structured in a manner that was open and transparent and likely not equitable to all communities. Would you support a nonpartisan independent redistricting commission for the 2031 process? Why or why not? I am open to that idea, but I'd have to see a whole lot more details before I would commit to say yes. 
And, and that's speaking from someone who is currently running in one of the most gerrymandered Senate districts ever created by humans. For those of you who don't know, uh, it starts at the main library downtown, moves east through Crescent Hill, finishes up across the, around at the river at Captain's Quarters before it heads south all the way through, back through Linden, St. Matthews, Baptist East Hospital, back out to J-Town, a little bit down to Fern Creek, across Highview, and finishes at the Preston Cinemas where they built the new Menards. So none of you know where that stuff is. So that's my point. I, I do agree there's an issue. And then you realize, because there's only 38 senators statewide, some of their districts are seven and eight counties big. They have multiple county seats, multiple jurisdictions. So outside of the, the rules for splitting counties, which I can understand why you shouldn't do that, I'm not sure what this commission would be able to do because the rules for creating districts are pretty much locked in other than probably do away with the partisanship that goes into it. And I, I, I would support that as well because this district's pretty much 50-50. So you'd wind up with what we got. Absolutely, the answer is yes, I would. And the reason, and I'm not necessarily blaming my Republican colleagues for this, because there have been Democrats that have been controlled during redistricting as well. This is something that I think both sides have taken advantage of. It should not be a politicized process. Basically, your right to vote and your right for your vote to matter is on the line. And when you have extremely gerrymandered districts, we have one district in this state that literally goes from Frankfurt all the way down almost to the Tennessee border. Because the existing Republican senator in that district wants to be able to live in Frankfurt, but still represent his hometown. I mean, the Senate maps did not go to the courts Obviously, the congressional maps and the House maps did. We had a very intentional out. The majority of female Democratic representatives from the city of Louisville were literally carved out of their own districts on purpose by a block. Dr. Burke, what legislation do you support in the surge of gun deaths and violence in all communities, not just here in Louisville. This one is so personal to me that it's almost sometimes difficult for me to talk about because you know, what I do when I'm not serving as your senator is I work right outside of Room 9 in the major trauma center in this city, you know, University of Louisville. And my job is to help triage, image, and treat all of our major trauma patients. When I started working at University of Louisville 30 years ago, I started the Department of Emergency Radiology, then left, went out to private practice, came back. We didn't deal with gunshot wounds, guys. We had blunt trauma. We had car accidents, work injuries, people falling out of tree stands. I do not go to work now without at least three gunshot wounds a day, every day. I have filed legislation to try to decrease the numbers of guns in this state. We have excellent legislation that I will file this upcoming session just to allow family members who know that a loved one is in a place where they are not safe holding a gun and having a gun to take it away for a while 
just until things get better and their emotional, mental, and physical states improve. We can require safe gun storage. Our police go on TV every third week asking people, please do not leave your gun under your car seat. The kids are breaking in, stealing them, and using it. I will tell you, if you are not locking your gun in a safe with your ammunition separate and nobody having access to that key, you are not being a responsible gun owner. There would be people who would say they are a responsible gun owner and therefore having the loaded gun in the safe next to the bed where they can do the four digit code is the responsible thing to do. We are a state that is a strong Second Amendment state. It's gonna be tough to overcome some of that. My number one thing for overcoming the gun violence, because we're at 133 murders, I believe, here locally at this point, hundreds more shots being fired. The, the two things, one I've already mentioned, which would be juvenile detention. Again, there's so much retaliatory gunfire. The, the shooting because of disrespect, shooting as revenge because you shot someone I know. If we could just separate those folks for a bit, and, and then intervene with psychological care. We do need to have social workers that respond with police. We do need to have people who can go visit you once you are incarcerated and find out what's going on inside. And if we can, again, to use her term, bring you back to a good spot, that's going to maybe get our numbers back down to something more acceptable. Mr. What should legislatures be doing to ensure that our children receive the quality education needed so that they can achieve their potential? As a 28-year teacher, I know that the knee-jerk response would be more funding. I'm going to go with less getting their nose into our business. Teaching was a great profession when I started 28 years ago. A lot of autonomy. I got to use my expertise. I didn't have 47 forms. I didn't have 16 assistant superintendents. I had a principal who made sure I came to work every day. I had an assistant principal who made sure I was teaching what I'm supposed to be teaching and they gave me a big book that said start with one and finish with 187. And in between it was my expertise and my knowledge of my subject and things went reasonably well. There's so much bureaucracy now from the KDE, from the state legislature, from JCPS, you can just keep adding it in. My entire job now with the school system is testing. We pull kids out of class so often, they have to have a full-time guy, this guy, to sit down with a Chromebook and say, no, you're taking another test this week. That's craziness. Get back to the subject in the classroom with a quality teacher, of which 99% of them are, and that'll be a step in the right direction. What do we do to improve the quality of education in the state of Kentucky? Mm -hmm. I think we begin, honestly, by respecting our teachers. So one thing we have to do is understand the importance of education in this state. I'm sure you were aware that last session we gave every state employee a raise, with the exception of our teachers. We did not give our teachers a raise. So I went to my Republican colleagues, head of appropriation revenue, and I said, why did we not give our teachers a raise? And his answer was, 
they're not gonna vote for us anyhow why would we guys if that is how you are going to legislate if you are going to only care about what's in it for you not what's in it for the state what we need to move forward in this state is better educators teachers that are empowered to teach we don't need book banning we don't need book burning we don't need the legislature telling you literally what words you can use in a classroom or whether or not you can address a child as a he if that's what he asks you to do. What are you going to do better for elections that have not already been done? I can tell you that for me, personally, Citizens United and this black money that is coming into campaigns all over the country, I think is perhaps the second worst decision ever made by the Supreme Court. And, and up until three or four months ago, I would have said the single worst decision. We have got to put limits on how much candidates are allowed to take and to spend. Because again, what is happening is you have people who are able and willing, along with their cronies, to self-fund their campaigns and basically buy your votes. That is not a representative democracy. I would be happy, happy, on a state senate race with a $10,000 max limit. That is all you are allowed to spend. It will not happen right now, but is it a goal? Absolutely because this money is polluting our democracy. It is giving too much voice to ultra-rich corporations and taking away the voice from the individual voters where it belongs. I'm gonna commend someone she's already mentioned and that is uh, Secretary of State Michael Adams. Um, and she's correct. He is having to fight many people of his own party. Uh, he has expanded the number of days to vote. I, I totally appreciate that. I had someone was in here earlier mentioning voting at the fairgrounds. I love that. Big room, anybody can vote anywhere. I liked it. And I actually learned from him that in our past, we had multiple days of voting. It wasn't anything new. And so everybody thinks he's the one changing the law, and he's not. So I think as we become more secure through things like IDs, which I know a lot of people are opposed to, we become more secure about not having, don't be hooked to the internet and those kind of things during voting. All of those are right. I think expanding the number of days and the number of hours you have the opportunity to vote is the right direction. Um, so you can get everybody, or at least a majority of the people to the polls who want to be. Thank you very much. Uh, it's now time for our closing statements. Because, you know, I'm a doctor, I believe in data. Right now, the city of Louisville is spending $900,000 per homicide and almost $500,000 per gunshot wound. So when we have, like we had a couple weeks ago, six gunshots in one weekend, $3 million 
of taxpayer monies going just to that. If we don't do something to stop this violence, the cost in human lives, the cost in, in emotional toll that this is taking, and the cost in dollars and cents has got to come to an end. We need legislators who are willing to say, yes, I respect your Second Amendment right, but we have got to make guns safer in this state. We are in the bottom 10 for gun safety legislation statewide, and I promise you, if you reelect me, this is one of the issues that I will not let go of. I commend her on her ideas. The problem is Frankfurt doesn't work that way. She's going to file all of these things, and the Republican-led supermajorities in both parties are not even going to give that a second look. I get to be the person who, if I'm elected, I get to be in the room with the leadership of the Republican Party when decisions are being made. I get to participate where all of those decisions go on. You can elect me the Republican, and I'm still going to pull the legislature to the left because I'm way more moderate than many of the folks that are there. But at least I get to participate, as opposed to when it's 30 to 8 or 31 to 7, there's about six people in a room making a decision these days. And, and I hate to say that because the Metro Council, we're so much more functional and friendly. Paula McCraney is back there. I can go into her office, we can have a discussion. She can come talk to me. I mean, kind of like, we're family down there. That's not how Frankfurt rolls. And that isn't gonna change. It was that way when the Democrats were in charge. It's that way now that the Republicans are in charge. And I will be able to play among those rules. Thank you. That was James Peden, Republican candidate for the 26th District State Senate. And before him, Democrat incumbent Dr. Karen Berg, both presenting their positions at a Louisville League of Women Voters candidate forum held October the 12th. Now, with the huge slate of candidates on this year's ballot, I urge you to search LPM, which is Louisville Public Media Voter Guide, enter your address, and get information on those candidates who will be appearing on your ballot. Other nonpartisan sites to visit are votesmart.org and vote411.org. Thanks for listening to the Access Hour on Grassroots Community Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM.